I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, and welcome to the PR Weekly the podcast that unpacks PR industry news, analysis, and gossip in one weekly listen. I'm Arvin Hickman, news editor of PR Week, and... I'm John Harrington, PR Week UK editor. Today, we're going to take a look at how COVID has impacted internal comms. PR Week has done a deep dive into the issue with a content series, and we'll take a look at some of the main findings. And a bit later on in the program, we'll be joined by Manifest's Julian Obubo to give us his take on a controversial report on institutional racism. So it is this really sort of franken report in a way that finds these recommendations that to me point to an unequal society, but then essentially tries to explain away the the causative factors. Now, this is our second episode, and we are recording just after Easter. John, how was your Easter weekend? Did you get any interesting chocolate eggs? Um, I got no uh, chocolate eggs, interesting or otherwise, Arvin, because I'm vegan. You should know that by now. But I've sort of put chocolate behind me, if I'm honest. I've left that in another age, which is a shame, because sometimes I just, I want nothing more. But yeah, you know, I've made my bed. But yeah, I got, oddly, I got a bit sunburnt one day, and then the next day, um... I was freezing cold. So, yeah, it's been a very strange few days, really, isn't it? So, uh, news. There's obviously... um, It's been quite a short week so far. So, arguably, there should be less news. But there has been quite a lot. And we're going to pick up on a couple of things that happened towards the back end of last week. Michael Froelich, Ogilvy UK CEO, joining Reba Shanwick as its EMEA chief executive. Finn Partners acquiring a a London-based digital marketing agency. We've seen Facebook hiring Mastercard's Marcom's chief, uh, Rose Beaumont, for a senior role across EMEA. Um, And Portland has hired former SPAD Anita Boateng from FTI Consulting. Taylor Herring joined Iceland's roster of comms agencies. W Communications picked up the retained business for the online retailer berry.co.uk. Senior lobbyists, in fact, are calling for an overhaul of transparency rules after the lobbying scandal involving David Cameron. 
Elsewhere, uh, Richard Edelman has said he wants to remain at the helm of the world's largest comms group for 10 more years. That was uh, an interview with our, our US team at PR Week. Read more of the, about this uh, and about his succession plan. Um, and of course, keep up to date with all the news at prweek.com forward slash UK. Each week, we're going to take a deep dive into some of the bigger headlines of the past week. Um, this week, we're going to take a look at three topics, the Michael Froelich move, the Finn Partners M&A and internal comms. Now, John, the Frolic move is quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, it was big news when he sort of took the helm of Ogilvy, um, given his background leading its PR business across EMEA. Uh, and listeners might recall that he sort of helped guide that agency through a really challenging period uh, where they consolidated all of their different businesses, including the advertising agency and obviously their PR business, um, into the one Ogilvy model. And, and it was quite a bumpy process. There were redundancies to teams. Uh, Matt Buchanan was brought in to lead its PR and influence arm, which he still does today. Now, um, I spoke to a, a couple of contacts at Ogilvy before this broke, because uh, we received the news on embargo, just to sort of find out what they knew. And, you know, it, it was news to them, which sort of suggests it was a bit of a shock uh, were you a bit surprised that Michael left at this time? And, and what do you make, so what do you think might be motivating his move? Well, to be honest, I think I was more surprised in a way. I was probably part of that group that was more surprised when he got the job. I mean, I don't, that, that, that's no disrespect to Michael at all, because he's obviously a very, very capable operator. And um, uh, I remember at the time the news that he'd gone up to, um, as the, the head of the PR operation to run the whole thing, it was seen as, um, you know, a great thing for PR, that it sort of shows... PR's kind of role at the centre of the kind of Marcom's universe, I suppose. Some might argue with that, but it was certainly um, certainly seen in that way in many circles. I mean, I imagine there's a couple of things here. I, th- I think, I mean, generally, uh, Ogilvy is is far more lean, leaning towards advertising as a whole, uh, the whole paid media world. So, and, and that's that's been a, a part of the world that's had more difficulties than a lot of others during the pandemic. So, probably no surprise to say, life has been fairly difficult there so and I also think you know maybe there's there's a chance that he'd want to sort of relish a new challenge and you know I think Ogilvy UK and Weber Shanwick Amir are very different operations goes without saying so I mean whereas on the one hand you might say it's regressive because he's going back to PR Weber's the second biggest PR agency in the world and also the Amir role is is huge so um, I think he probably sees it as a very um, uh, enticing challenge. Do you, do you get the sense, though, that given the difficulties that, you know, having to sort of consolidate Ogilvy, and I can imagine that was quite an emotionally taxing time for him, do you feel like he's got into a stage now where he's he's done that project, you know, Ogilvy's fully integrated, um, it feels like he's achieved that, um, but now there are new challenges on the horizon because, as you mentioned, the advertising business has, has struggled, it has everywhere, um, and, and perhaps this is a, an opportunity for him to get a, a new challenge, a, a fresh start somewhere else. Um, but also for Ogilvy, it might be an opportunity to place someone with more of that sort of advertising slash media focus um, at the helm. I think so, yeah. I mean, to be honest, I imagine there was a, there were kind of push and pull factors, if you like. It, it's, it's a very fair point that when um, when Michael went into that business, it was around the time of the, the sort of one Ogilvy integration policy that got a lot of people talking and there was a discussion about how much you can really break up its uh, or sort of unite its, its component parts. I think that was probably, as you say, a very taxing period. Um, and it may be that actually the stint he's had there, uh, which was what, it was 2018 when he moved in, I think. He may say that three years or so is probably 
quite a good innings that and he wants to move on to something else. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Why do you think it's a enticing challenge? What do you think will be his challenge at Weber? Going back a few years at Weber, I mean, I think there was quite a lot of surprise that the agency didn't replace Colin Byrne, who was, who was the Emir chief when he departed back in 2018. I mean, Colin was at the agency for 20 years and more recently they was, lost another very senior veteran there, Tim Sutton, who was the, the regional chairman um, who left a year ago. So it sort of made made sense that the agency would look around, maybe take a bit of time, but look around for someone who can take a real kind of strong lead role across the region. Because I, I do think that's that's something that's very necessary at the moment. It's also worth saying there have been a few other senior departures there across Amir. And it really kind of feels like sort of um, shoring up the Amir-wide kind of operation is just, just seems completely logical. And, and going back to Froelich... Um, I mean, he, he is really experienced in this area. I mean, say so he led global PR in the UK before heading um, the PR business across Amir. So he's sort of got um, got experience here. I mean, I, when I spoke to Michael a couple of years ago, soon after he got the top UK job at, at Ogilvy, um, he discussed this transition period he, um, from UK to Amir. What he said is it moved from command and control to influence and soft power, which uh, I was reading this feature that I wrote back a few years ago, early on today, and it did make me think. And I wonder if we're going to see that sort of approach as he takes on the, the Weber Shanwick role, because, you know, there is, there is that argument that when you're talking about a region that, that large, you have to take a slightly different approach than if you're talking about having... Um, everyone under un, under one roof in central London. But then the London aspect, the, the, the lockdown and the sort of the office sort of environment is another crucial issue, really. I mean, I wonder if running a regional agency network of this size um, across such a big region has changed in the age of, of COVID. So actually what we thought was a, a, a decent policy in 2018 is maybe maybe not quite the right one for, for 2021. It's a really interesting point in terms of how this pandemic might shift working patterns to a degree and mindsets to a degree on how agencies do serve clients and you know you might have teams actually collaborating more closely or, or, or you know ha- having done so during the pandemic and, and maybe they do need someone like a Michael Frolick at the, at the helm of, of that region sort of acting like the glue and making sure everyone is, is, is aligned. But let's move on to the, the Finn Partners um, acquisition. What can you tell us about that? I mean, this is uh, one of a number of acquisitions they've made. I was actually counting them in recent years, and I think you can kind of you can kind of lose track. It's probably been about half a lun- half, half a dozen in London over the past sort of six or seven years, and that's been sort of stepped up in the last sort of three or four years. So, um, effectively, they've taken on a digital marketing specialist which is based not a million miles from where their uk hq uh, is based near the old street roundabout it's called mint twist what fin partners have been doing for um, a few years is buying up agencies that offer different services that they don't really have already so fin partners is effectively becoming something like an, a, a sort of a fully integrated agency but through acquisition you know, uh, we've got digital marketing through Mint Twist. I mean, there's an analogy here going back to Weber with Weber's acquisition of um, Flipside, you know, which in itself is a digital marketing agency. And I think that this is um, this is a pattern you see sometimes from sort of uh, agencies that have got some got some money behind them because digital marketing is continues to be a very important part of the comms mix. And it's not really a surprise to me that um, agencies would want to get some deep specialism in, in this area. If we look at some of the other acquisitions they've made, I mean, the... Um, it was uh, the most recent one in London, I think, was um, ZPR, which is a sort of um, consumer lifestyle agency. So that's very different. But it's obviously thought that those bringing in those those professionals can can add something to their offer. Um, and they had financial services specialist, Moorgate and Brighter Group, which is very well known travel and lifestyle consultancy. 
um, and then a B2B specialist called ABI as well. Um, and they were all in the last sort of four years. It, it really does sort of show that um, Finn are quite serious about building up something akin to a fully integrated offer. I mean, obviously, the, the challenge now is going to be to integrate them properly. Right. I mean, that's always the challenge. And a lot of people are very serious. And I've spoken to some agencies that say M&A is not the way simply because you need to build things up from the bottom and get that sort of culture uh, and way of working set. And it's not something that you can just sort of bolt on. But personally, I think it can work. And I think it's been shown to work. I mean, Flipside has helped uh, Weber. Smithfield has helped Edelman. I think it probably helps that geographically, they're definitely an agency to keep looking at in terms of acquisitions. And we're going to take a look at internal comms. Uh, Peer Week has released a content series for subscribers of The Knowledge, which is our premium subscription service, about how COVID has been a bit of a game changer for internal communications. Um, It certainly feels like the stature and importance of internal comms has grown substantially in the past year. John, what were some of the key findings of these reports? The report itself is based on talking to quite a lot of very senior people who work um, in internal comms in this country. I don't want to give away too many of the headline points because I do recommend everyone um, signs up to the knowledge um, and, and has, a, has a read because it's, it's really great. But some of the main, the main points, unsurprisingly, COVID-19 has increased the importance of internal comms. I mean, that was, that was clear. I mean, they would say that, wouldn't they? But what the majority say is that um, leaders at their organisations recognise this and say so. So that's, that's very um, comforting from the point of view of, um, of our sector. There are some people in the who are quoted who talk about internal comms moving from a sort of a, a kind of communications channel, if you like, to a strategic function. Um, and the teams involved in it um, have been growing. Some of the kind of uh, most important focuses of, of internal comms have been mental health support, as you, you'd be uns- unsurprised to hear, linked to the challenges of adapting to home working. And uh, diversity and inclusion, increasingly as well, was uh, was up there among the cited as among the very most um, important factors. Other things that they say is that um, there are great expectations placed upon internal comms, but these haven't necessarily been accompanied by budget increases. Perhaps it's understandable when, you know, budgets budgets are tight during the pandemic, but I do think this is a concern, really. And I think, you know, we're always going to bang the drum for people to invest in communications. Um, this is an interesting quote. One respondent said her monthly budget per employee was, quote, equal to the cost of a chocolate bar. I don't know if she's talking Kit Kat, Milky Way, or maybe, one, you know, one of those big galaxy bars. But <laughs> I think I think either way, um, the point is made. And a really important point here. Um, that I would stress is a lot of the internal comms professionals and say they all work in-house weren't very impressed with the quality of what they're getting from external agencies. And I think this is a huge opportunity for agency land. I mean, one thing I I hear a lot um, from agencies and have done for the last last few years, but it's really accelerated under COVID has been how they want to get into internal comms. So, I mean, personally, if I ran an agency, I would try and hire some really good in-house internal comms people who know uh, the faults of agency world as they identify it well and, you know, build up this uh, specialism. So, sorry, well, can, you, can you elaborate on what one or two of these faults were? What were some of the, the common criticisms that, that were levelled at, at agencies? Um, well, I think there's this general sense that they don't quite understand what the in-house teams want. I imagine, and it's, it is understandable that, you know, agency world is 
focused on external comms, isn't it? I mean, that, that's the sort of, that's the background. So I think maybe there's, there's a bit of a sense of, you might think you understand us, but actually you don't. There's probably a sense that you can kind of export some of the principles of external comms and media relations and influencer outreach and so on into internal communications. And it doesn't necessarily work like that. I do personally think there's sometimes a bit of a clash between, if you like, the sort of comms culture and HR culture. And I think some internal and internal comms is really the um, strides both. And I think maybe it's those that are a bit more from the HR side don't quite get a lot of the culture of the comms world, if you like. And I'm kind of simplifying quite a lot. Um, And I'm sure um, I'm generalising too. I'm sure there are a lot of people who do get this. But yeah, I really think um, there are lessons to be learnt there. Um, And it might be nuances. It might just be the way they approach things. It might be related to budget expectations in, you know, internal comms versus external. Uh, I mean, frankly, don't organisations need to spend more uh, on internal vis-a-vis external than they have done in recent years? I would argue absolutely yes. doesn't mean they should spend less externally, but, you know, it's it's increasingly important. An interesting aspect of this is how sort of internal comms and external comms are sort of becoming more intertwined to some degree, aren't they? I mean, we've seen, yeah. seen some really high-profile cases of, you know, employee revolts and, and that sort of thing. You know, it's been happening at Google. Um, even recently, Deliveroo's writers were coming out and, and, and saying things. I mean, it just feels like there's, been, there's a bit of a disconnect almost on occasions between um, internal comms and external comms in the past. Do you think that now has to change? Yes, it does. I mean, you know, there's that saying that um, in, in all internal is external, And I really think this has been brought to life recently. I mean, the thing is, in the age of social media and employee activism, these issues are more important than ever. You know, and it's a really key time because at the moment, people are reassessing their lives, not just their jobs. They're thinking, where do I want to work? What will I I be happy to put up with? What will my commute be like? I've had all this extra support over the COVID era. era. What are you going to give me when things go back to, in inverted commas, normal? Um, so it's really a key time. And I think I think a lot of employees will walk and I think a lot of employees will speak up on social media if they're not happy. It's a real danger. I mean, a good example recently was Goldman Sachs. Um, we had them as our flop of the week a few weeks ago. And there was a situation where some of the junior bankers in the US, they made a presentation um, about the effects of a 95 hour working week the effect that that's having on, on their health. Um, it found its way onto social media and that the chief executive's response wasn't great. We're here to serve our clients and we're very, very busy. And that forces people to be engaged more and obviously work harder. I think there's got to be balance and there has to be guardrails. It's something I've been passionate about for the last 10 years, going back to when I ran banking. In a 24-7 connected world, we have to find ways to help people, especially young people that are transitioning into the professional world, have some balance. And we've done some things over time to try to help those guardrails exist. Goldman Sachs is always going to be a competitive place. It's always going to be a place where people work hard and there's lots of reward for that effort. But at the same point in time, we know that this is a time where there's more work going on because of the velocity of business. The pandemic makes it more difficult and so we need to be... Says David Solomon, just remember, if we all go an extra mile for our clients, even when we feel like we've reached our limit, it can really make a difference in our performance. It doesn't, doesn't really kind of scream, I'm, I'm with you, I'm, I'm supporting you. Um, so it started as an internal comms problem. 
it ended up as very much an external reputation problem. And this isn't this isn't a new phenomenon, but it's it's really exploding. One of the aspects you mentioned, of course, was social media and, and how things can very rapidly explode on social media and becomes a massive comms challenge. Um, one of the, the things recently that, that sort of caught my attention was um, the former Arsenal legend Thierry Henry deciding that he had enough of racist abuse on social media platforms and deactivating his accounts. People are getting racially abused, as I just said. But for me, when you see in the statement, it's very important. I talked also about bullying, harassment that can cause mental uh, issues. People commit suicide because of it. Uh, it's very difficult, I know, to eradicate everything, right? But can it be safer? We all know that it is a great tool. It is a great tool that a lot of people are using as a weapon. Why? Because they can hide behind fake accounts. Now, now the context here is that you know his former club Arsenal has launched this stop online abuse campaign. Um, you know, and even last night, two Liverpool players um, received racist messages and, and reported it. In fact, Instagram um, recently said that they took action on six point six million pieces of hate speech between October and December last year. It really feels, John. I don't know how it feels like to you, but it really feels like you know this form of racist, racist abuse and and cyber bullying has become such a regular feature on these platforms. My question is, you know, are these platforms still safe places for brands to live and brands to engage? Well, safe, I don't know. I mean, if you mean in terms of avoiding having to deal with people writing this, I mean, clearly not. You know, if you're if you're an individual, if you're rep- representing an organisation such as a football club that has a lot of uh, black players, then... I think it's until something else is done, then probably not. I mean, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't they shouldn't be on it. Um, although I completely respect Thierry Henry, and I think he's completely right to do this. You know, because it does show that the importance of um, of taking this issue seriously. I mean, I think I guess someone like Thierry Henry is in a different position to say if you're a new footballer now and you were thinking about your own profile and you're thinking about how you get endorsements and um, how you just become a more attractive prospect for sort of commercial um, sponsors, but also other football clubs, then you can see why people like that feel they have to be on social media. I mean, Thierry Henry has been there, done it, bought the T-shirt. Um, he's, in a, he's in a different position to, to that extent. Um, but I do think it's, it's great that he's made this stand. I guess it also highlights the, the growing importance of social media managers, uh, you know, which which sometimes brands do internally. Um, sometimes they hire agencies to do it on, on their behalf. But it really feels like this has now become such an important front line for communications and, and really sort of managing, you know, that that sort of corporate reputation because it, it can so easily go wrong. And maybe maybe there needs to be more support, maybe investment in, in terms of social uh, media management. What, what are your views on that? Well, I think I think unfortunately sometimes. There are some organisations that still don't quite understand how important social media managers are and how um, how difficult that role can be. I mean, I still think there's that idea of you, you give social media to the, the young. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And they'll just do their own thing. Um, I mean, if anyone does still think that, then I think they're, they're balmy and they're living in, you know, 2010. Social media should be considered the first line of communications, frankly. You've got to assume that everything that's on social media could be in traditional media. Um, it could be on Good Morning Britain. It could be in The Sun or The Guardian. It's really surprising if people don't sort of get their um, their houses sorted when it comes to social social media and really respecting social media managers. To be fair, a lot of them are extremely good. Um, and we've seen some really good examples of decent um, handling by social media managers, both in terms of um, putting out kind of um, heartfelt and effective statements when they're really serious issues, handling it sort of delicately, getting the getting the tone right. Um, and that really suggests that there's some properly kind of experienced comms professionals behind them or it is them, you know. And at the same time, taking advantage of the fun side and, you know, we'll go back to the Weetabix baked beans and all of that stuff, you know, and um, I personally have no problem with that. I think that's all, it's all, it's all a good, good distraction these days. Um, so, yeah, I mean, sometimes I think social media managers are the most sort of undervalued part of this industry, but um, they're certainly up there. And on that note, John, I'm going to bid you farewell because um, Julian is waiting to jump into the hot seat. Great. Thanks, Alvin. We are now joined by Julian Obubo, who is a partner and brand strategy director at Manifest Group. Welcome to the PR Weekly, Julian. Ah, oh, thank you, Arvind. Good to be here. It's good to have you. Actually, we haven't spoken for a while, have we? Due to the lockdown. Yeah, yeah. It's been. I think the last time we met and spoke for a long time was probably early 2020, if not 2019. Well, I know you've been very, very busy since then, so we're going to come to that a little bit later on. But the reason why I, I kind of invited you on onto the PR Weekly is because you and Manifest are well known in the industry for your progressive approach to diversity and inclusion. Um, in fact, um, for our listeners, Manifest was the first agency to achieve the blueprint status. Julian is heavily involved with the BME PR Pros um, community and does a lot of industry events on this topic. Um, and the reason why I kind of invited you down to talk about this is because I really like having a chat to you about these things. You have a very sort of considered um, viewpoint and very sort of contextual um, and not just sort of emotional. And I, I think that it, it's very easy when we talk about sort of controversial reports on race um, that emotions do come to the fore. So, yeah, I'm very interested to hear your take on this. Um, now, for our listeners who haven't had a chance to read the lengthy report, I'll take you through some of the key findings. Uh, one of the findings was that while racism and racial injustice still exist in the UK, the Commission no longer sees Britain um, where the system is deliberately rigged against ethnic minorities. It also argues that the term institutionalised racism is overused and often without evidence of institutionalised bias. There was a really controversial part of this report um, on colonial history and slavery, suggesting that how culturally 
African people have been transformed and remodeled into African Brits is something that should be taught at schools. There was also another bit, which which I know Julian, you probably have some some views on, about how um, there should be more focus on ethnic minority communities helping themselves through their own agency, rather than waiting for, and this is their their quotes, invisible external forces to assemble to do the job. Now, Julian, there was a lot more in this report, but to begin with, um, what was your take? Uh, What were some of the key findings that really stood out to you? And what do you think the report did well and did poorly? Wow. Um, I mean, I think it's good to start with what it did poorly. And I think the major the major mistake, which is deliberate, I think, was the rollout. So the fact that um, an analysis, or I guess uh, an overview was released on Tuesday night um, and reports in, in, the, in the media came out Wednesday morning before the final report was actually released. So you had a a situation where you had media reports saying, oh, there are 24 recommendations in this report, but we don't know what they are. Um, And I think that allowed for the government, that allowed for the commissioners to frame the reports in such a way that did not necessarily um, gel with some of the deeper findings in in, in the report. So the report is, is... over 200 pages long. So it is quite detailed and there are some good recommendations in there. But the framing was so deliberate and the timing of it made me think that there was some political um, desire to really shape what uh, was was being said. But I think when when we pass the, um, the report and look a bit deeper, there are some things in there that I felt were probably... Uh, helpful in the, in the, in the in the sense that I I appreciated the the look on different forms of racism, so institutional, stru- structural, systemic, and also identifying that the term institutional racism can also cause confusion and sometimes is widely is is too too widely used. Um, and then if you look at the 24 recommendations, there are some really good things in there that actually go against some of the, the definitions and the setup that, that, has, that have been done in the overview. So in, in essence, it, it felt like um, a disjointed report that was made by political actors, but actually had some pretty damning things to say about British society that the the framers, that the commissioners then tried to um, essentially sandpaper over. So it, it, it's a very disjointed, a disjointed report. But the way it was positioned, the way it was briefed in, to me, discredited the, the whole thing. You mentioned that it was good in, in how it sort of went into some details about some of these definitions. Perhaps for our listeners, uh, what were some of the definitions or the key definitions? The one in, in particular was sort of institutional racism and how that is being currently applied. Yeah, so it defined institutional racism as applicable to an institution that is racist or discriminatory with the processes policies, attitudes, or behaviors in a single institution. It then went on to define systemic racism, went on to define structural racism, went on to define two other things, explained racial disparities and unexplained racial disparities. But in this narrow definition of institutional racism that I think most people would generally uh, agree with, it then discarded that narrow definition by then saying, "Oh, there's no such thing as institutional racism," and I'm 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 just generalizing here. But it defined it, it defined it, but then didn't stick to that definition. 
Um, so in, in a way, it was it, it set up the idea that, OK, institutional racism is a term that has been abused in, in British society. Fine. And then it says, OK, this is how we're going to define it in, in this report. And then it, it essentially just targets the, I guess, the more colloquial form of, of racism. And, of, and I think it also speaks to a broader problem we have in in society, and I guess in British society more specifically, where the discussion around racism is too focused on intent. And it is very hard to, very difficult to, to prove intent at all times. I think we should get to a place where we're focused on outcomes, because the minute you you try and, and, and find intent or try and prove it in intent, it's a waste of time. The outcomes are there. The outcomes are affecting people in really, really dire ways. Um, and if we take a look at the, the Windrush scandal, for example, that that's an example of um, a scandal that had racist outcomes, but did not necessarily result from racist intent. And by that, I mean, you did not have someone at the home office in the 70s saying, I'm going to destroy these cards because in 40 years time, I want the government to start deporting people from from the West Indies. There was no malicious intent to that level. But because you have a situation where a lot of people do not, a lot of people working in, in the home office do not know about the empire do not know about the history of the West Indies and, and the UK. And you had a s- situation where there was this just uh, carelessness and saying, all right, we're going to destroy all these landing cards and there's probably not going to be any any consequence. That led to a racist outcome where you had the government saying, you are not a citizen and we're going to deport you back to a place that you left when you were one years old. That's a racist outcome. It's interesting you mentioned that in terms of outcomes versus definitions. Do you think sometimes we get a little bit too caught up in, in, in definitions and, and the focus really shouldn't be on, on that? Exactly. I think I, I think we are too focused in definitions. The, the, the term racist or, you know, r- racism is just it's such a loaded term and it doesn't have to be because... We are operating in, in many societies under, um, you know, national myths, under uh, histories that happened way before the present, um, that guide how we think and, and, and how we act. So the idea that a, a nation that was an empire, a nation that instituted slavery, a nation that because it instituted, instituted slavery had to then, you know, undo it. The, the idea that that would not have any consequences in the modern day, that that would not produce any um, racial disparities is, is, is laughable. But because we're so focused on is this racist or is this not, it really wastes time. But when you look at it more broadly, especially across the industry, I mean, there is clearly a problem. Um, you know, you look at the CEOs of all the top companies, um, whichever industry it might be, all the, all the top public health bodies, it, it, there's, there is clearly some level of, of racial discrimination going on. What, what was your sort of view on, on the tone of the report and in trying to find sort of these little victories where they probably didn't really exist in reality? To me, the, I, there was a marked difference with uh, the introduction and, and the overview and some of the findings within the report. So it is this really sort of Franken report in a way that finds these recommendations that to me point to um, an unequal society, but then essentially tries to explain away um, the the causative factors. But recommendation seven and eight in 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 the in the report. Recommendation seven is invest in proven interventions through better targeted funding. So. Essentially, you're admitting that interventions can be made to fix institutions, to fix broken systems. But then you then say, oh, 
there is no evidence of institutional racism. And then recommendation eight is advance fairness in the workplace. Um, and it then goes to say develop resources and evidence-based approaches of what works to advance fairness in the workplace. If, if, if it's a recommendation, you've seen that workplaces aren't fair. So try to then just paint this, you know, rosy picture that, oh, we found all these bad things. We fu- we've recommended all these, uh, uh, all these initiatives. But, you know, in general, everything is fine. I mean, that, that's disingenuous as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's hard to reconcile some of those things, isn't it? One of the the criticisms that the report has widely received is that it was an exercise in gaslighting, that it was sort of politically motivated all along, and its its real goal or mission, if you like, was to deflect the focus away from tackling institutionalised racism. Do you think these criticisms are fair? Absolutely, I I, I believe so. And um, if you look at the makeup of the commissioners, you look at Tony Sewell, you know, for example, he's on record prior to the setting up of this of this commission, doubting, you know, if institutional racism existed. Uh, so I do believe this was a commission set up by the government to find people who, you know, believed in the, in their hypothesis and their view of British society, and then essentially went out to then find evidence of that view and publish it. And and in the finding of the evidence, they actually found things that contradicted their their viewpoints. It's interesting because even in the report itself, it 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 concedes that a number of the commissioners were sort of growing up in the 70s and 80s from a different generation and, and yeah. that, that their views probably weren't representative of, of people growing up today. Yeah, and, and I, I, I don't know, I, I feel like uh, the report really wanted to push back against the events of last summer, um, the, the Black Lives Matter uh, resurgence, the feeling of uh, a reckoning on on race and racism in, in the UK that was caused by this emphasis that we need to challenge the narrative of empire. We need to go back into our, our recent and long history and retell a new story. Obviously, it comes through in that piece you, you mentioned earlier about, you know, a a narrative about slavery that focuses on the the way the enslaved people were able to change their culture um and not about the suffering of, of, of slavery and that that to me is just so offensive i mean yeah i, mean, I read that which i was absolutely shocked about <laughs> trying to somehow paint a rosy picture of, of that level of colonial history i mean where i'm from in australia even you know that was i guess the post-slavery era slavery did exist even even then um but it, it would be extremely offensive to suggest that any there was any positive outcomes or or, or shine on, on that that um, chapter of history i wanted to ask you in terms of um the report itself what do you think the report should have done um to, to be improved and, and to be something that that actually provide something useful for society going forward? It's involving a wider range of academics, a wider range of think tanks. Um, think tanks, almost by nature, are, are political. But if you involve a, a wide range, you can get to um, some consensus or at least a, a better understanding of, of the facts. A focus on impartiality, a, a focus on on getting to the roots of some of these issues would have been better, would have yielded uh, um, better results. But also, there there have been several reports, which the report does mention, there have been several reports over the last 10 years that point to institutional racism, that point to um, systemic racism across British 
society. So uh, I guess another question is, did we need this? What does this report tell you about the government's view on this issue? What is the government's message here? And what do you believe will be the legacy of this report for um, black and um, minority ethnic communities fighting for racial equality? I think the government's view is that... um, Racism does not exist in, in, in the UK and all disparities um, can be accounted for through personal discipline through or indiscipline um, and through sort of community culture. That's the, the, the government's view. I think the government sees the, the, the UK and the British Empire um, as, a, you know, a source of, of good without question. We should not tell a story of slow progress. We should not tell a, a story of of focusing on parts of our, our multiracial society that need work because, as far as the, the government is concerned, we've done a good job. There's nothing to see. Let's move on. Yeah, it's been several months now, I guess almost a year since that, that horrific um, incident with, with George Floyd that sparked the Black Lives Matter movement. There's been a lot going on in the industry, a lot of talk about things happening. There's been some wonderful initiatives. Um, I know Elizabeth uh, Bananuka has, has, has done a few, which you've been involved in. I'm just curious to get a bit of an update on, on that. Firstly, you know, l- l- reflecting on, on the past year or, or up to a year of BLM talks and, and what's been going on in the industry, how do you think the industry has progressed, if at all. Mm. I think I, I, I had a bit of a of an epiphany um, last year after the, the resurgence of, of the Black Lives Matter movement, especially in the UK, that although we were comfortable as an industry and and professional body were, um, writ large in talking about the need for diversity, we were uncomfortable with talking about racism. We're, we're uncomfortable with talking about the fact that a lack of diversity is due to societal racism. So you had this situation where everyone was trying to figure out ways to bring some equity within the business, bring more ethnic minorities within the, the, the business, but without an understanding of, okay, why do we have this problem? Why do we need to fix it? So it was, all right, we need to fix it. But then the question is, all right, fix what? And it's not just fixing a lack of ethnic diversity. That's, that is good and should be done. But it's why is the pipeline all white? That's a question that we're, we've not really wrestled with properly. Be- because a lot of it is, is like out of the control of private businesses. After the symbolic gestures, people are actually seeing that, all right, it's quite difficult to you know, have long-term change in such a short space of time. Um, and and there, there are artificial things you, you can do, intentional things you can do to redress the balances on a, on a short term. But how do we ensure that we're doing, that we're building long-term? How do we ensure that the pipeline is open for ethnic minorities to feel comfortable and included um, in industries and in specific companies long-term? Uh, and that's the bit that we're still wrestling with. It's been nine months since you, sorry, I should say manifest, achieved blueprint status. Uh, what has happened um, since your agency received this? And what are some of the key lessons you've learned since then about how you sort of evolve and can constantly sort of improve? Ah, oh, key lessons. Challenging racism is hard. <laughs> um, and a lesson for us was, encourage, well, I guess, understanding that cultural competence is the most important thing when it comes to building a diverse and inclusive 
company. And by cultural competence, I mean the the understanding and the willingness to to understand the differences that um, people have that then they bring into a, a, a company. So it's it's understanding that all right, if we if we are a global company, that we are going to have individuals who do not see the world in, in the same way that you you see the world if you were born in a certain place. So it, a, a lot of it is down to. It's down to history. It's down to being aware of wider factors that shape your worldview and shape your society. Um, and I, I do think for a lot for a long time, our industry has not been comfortable in doing that. Has not been comfortable in in sort of I guess being a bit of a lecturer, a bit of a history teacher, because it just felt that oh, once we have a diversity policy, things are gonna are gonna get fixed. Well, if you have a diversity policy and people do not feel that their voices are are listened to they don't feel included in conversations then it's it's moot it's 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 nonsense a lesson we've been learning and and talking about it and, and implementing on, a, on an ongoing basis is how do we build cultural competence how do we celebrate diversity how do we ensure that everyone feels that okay this is my point of view i need to bring in other points of view in order to make this campaign work in order to to make this statement and writing on behalf of a, of a ceo work in order to ensure that we don't release that uh, press release because it contains that element. So it, it's w- w- once you build these these processes in place that require a lot, a lot, a lot of reading, a lot of, of learning, you create a stronger, more holistic, more long term uh, company that isn't just based on on, on targets. That is all we have time for today. I'd like to thank Julian for joining us. It's always wonderful to catch up with him. And also to my weekly sparring partner, John Harrington, and our producer, Lindsay Riley from Rethink Audio. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do visit prweek.com forward slash UK to stay up to date with all of our news and analysis. And we'd also love to hear your feedback on the PR Weekly. We hope you will join us next week. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.